Welcome to the Radiant Visalia podcast. Join us at one of our two services, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. Download the Church Center app or visit our website, radiantvisalia.com, to stay connected with us. All right, enjoy. you don't screw things up (laughs) really hear me don't screw things up by thinking that you know how to do what you're doing because what's happening here is just authentic natural and responsive to God and my prayer is please just keep letting that happen just keep letting it happen and uh, when I sat there and worship man I, I, I don't even think I you got through three words, and uh, I didn't know any of the songs. I had 52-year-old eyes. I mean, there were so many natural obstacles in the way, and God's Spirit just like went whoosh, and just swished me along. And I thought, wow, what a gift you are to this community. Just what a gift. So as you think about the next facility, don't make the mistake. and lose. It's not the facility, Right? Oftentimes when people transition from facility to facility, they get more sophisticated. It's just, I don't know what it is about it. I've just watched it. They just like, I don't know if it's a headiness or we get full of ourselves or we think we understand why it's happening or why it's happening or how it should happen. I don't understand any of that stuff. I can just tell you, as an observer, typically, unless somebody's pretty intentional about just letting it just keep happening, the gift that's happening here, that's sometimes just out of not looking to stay on top of that, it, it becomes sophisticated. So just just let it keep. What a what a joy. My one sadness is my wife Val's not here. She would she would absolutely she would have been hanging off one of those rafters. <laughs> and uh, she, I'm telling you, she 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 would have been going crazy, absolutely crazy. The only reason she's not here is is her very best friend, her daughter came to our home yesterday, and she's on her way to a mission trip to India. And this is her lifelong best friend. It's her daughter. So you know what she's going to do. She's going to dode over that girl. And so that's why she's here. And even though you don't know her, she sends her love. A little bit about me. Uh, only because uh, I, I do this, and I think I'd rather just kind of give you one minute of what I've done and who I am, not as a credential, but just as a snapshot. Can I do that real quick? So I'm 52, been married 31 years. I have two adult children, 29 and 30. The old, youngest one is single. The oldest one is married, has three grandchildren, lives about 90 miles from us. So I have three grandkids, seven, four, and two. Oldest two are girls. Love it. And my, the youngest is a boy, Jack Ian, and uh, you can see in my face, so I'll stop there. And uh, uh, absolutely love them. I love my family, love my wife. We've been married for, like I said, 31 years. She was my first date, only knew her 13 days before I asked her to marry me. We married five months later. <laughs> had, had, a son, had a son literally nine months to the day. Later, my father-in-law, who was a big Portuguese welder, used to tell me, if that kid's born one day too soon, I'm going to beat the hell out of you. I I just did nothing to push Valerie into premature labor. So, uh, uh, fortunately, we we got in within the acceptable framework. You know, good Portuguese Catholic welder, old school, you know, shotgun kind of thing. So... uh, uh, 
That's a little bit about me. Pastored for 26 years. That was my third church. I was a worship pastor for two years. I was an associate pastor for four and a half years. Was in full-time ministry from the time I was 18. Do the math. Uh, Started a church when I was 25, like Travis said. Did that for 26 years. Served as a university professor in a Christian university for about 15 years. Seminary professor for about five years. Did that on the side. Yada, yada, yada. About three years ago, the Lord made it clear, like, we needed to give the church to someone like Travis, bottom line. In fact, he knows the guy. And uh, this guy is just Travis in a different body down there in Southern Cal. And uh, he took over the church, and we made that transition, that final transition, uh, into September. And over the course of this last year, Valerie and I put together a new ministry called Reinvent Ministries. No promos for that. You can find out about that at another time. But it is an expression of our ministry to the larger church. So I, let me look at my face. You saw the look about my grandkids, right? I love the church. Big C church. I've grown up in it. I know it's warts. I know all the, they're hypocrites and, you know, and what they did in history and, you know, and all this stuff. But, you know, at the end of the day, I love the church. And um, all I want know is that from this point in my life forward, whatever I do, I want to strengthen the church. However, however, wherever I can do that. So with that, it's a joy to be with you this morning. So Travis asked me to speak on this text. So I'm going to read the text and then do this in 30 minutes, which will not be a problem, believe me. Believe me. Maybe he can't do it in 30 minutes, but I can do it in 30 minutes. I only say that, bro, because every pastor in his own church Makes the, anyway, I won't go ahead. Go ahead. So here's the text. Ephesians 4, chapter thir, or verse 31 and 32. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor, evil speaking be put away from you. I just want to focus on the concept of bitterness this morning. Uh, I saw the, the title was Digging Up the Root of Bitterness. I would like to approach this, my, my come from, right, is a little different uh, in the fact that rather than focusing on, you know, when you think about digging, how many of you feel the effort involved even in the title? We just had a root dug up. And there's no accidents, Right. Just before I came here, we had this big old freaking root that I can't dig up because I've got a problem with my hands. I can't, I can't, uh, I can't manage the shovel in really hard ground. So be that as it may. So we hired somebody to do it. One person was out there, and this guy was a pretty burly guy. And then all of a sudden I noticed there were two burly guys and three burly guys with pickaxes. And I went, now I don't feel that bad. You know, there's three of them going after this root. It took a lot of work to get the root up. They did get it up. But man, it left a darn big hole too. And I thought to myself, wow. And then I thought to myself, you asked me to speak in this game. I thought, you know, wouldn't it be better to deal with this from a preventative side rather than a curative side? Wouldn't it be better to deal with what prevents bitterness rather than uh, focus on having to dig the thing up, right? Now, having said that, do I think that you have bitterness in your life? Uh, If you are human, you probably do. Uh, So this message really is designed on both ends of the spectrum. It's it's designed to be both preventative 
But I'm going to assert that in looking at what prevents it, you can also deconstruct it and, in a sense, bring the cure. Same components. Same components that prevent are the same components that you will need to incorporate to deconstruct it. Now, when I think about how to overcome anything, the church tends to be highly prescriptive. How many of you have noticed that? If you haven't, listen to most any preacher who's either just in a church or on the radio or selling books. We live in a highly prescriptive uh, orientation to things. How to, how to, how to. Well, uh, I'm going to suggest that this message could probably technically be fitted with how to, but I'm going to say that what needs to be constructed lies deeper than just some sort of uh, superficial uh, response. In other words, you're going to have to actually change your thinking before you change your doing. How many of you think that it's probably pretty rigorous to change your thinking? Have any of you ever tried to change your doing without changing your thinking? You ever notice if you change your doing without changing your thinking, what you tend to do? You tend to revert back to what you were doing. Negatively, right? If you don't change your thinking, then you're doing, even though you can kind of bend it and adjust it for a period of time, you tend to go back into default. This is why Ephesians uses this phrase. He says he, it calls us to renew our minds. Because the renewal of our minds is really the deconstruction of how we thought that produces certain actions. And when our minds are renewed, our renewed minds produce what? Different actions, right? New actions. So I am suggesting that bitterness in our life is the result of a certain way of thinking. Bitterness in our life is a certain result of a certain way of thinking. Now, you can identify bitterness in your life and you can pray against it, pray against it, pray against it, pray against it, but until you renew your mind, i got news for you. Your prayers will not work. That's radical. And I'm just asking you to consider it. Like, I don't agree with that. Well, would you just go neutral for a moment and don't decide whether you believe it or not. Just consider it. Prayer by itself does not work. And the reason I say that is, is that the Bible clearly tells us that we have the responsibility of renewing our thinking. And so prayer, along with the renewing of the mind, works. In fact, I would say renewing of the mind without prayer won't work. You can't renew the mind without prayer. So it all works together. But I notice that there is a tendency in the church for people to kind of pray away things and not to do the hard work of actually looking at how I think about something and then embracing a different way of thinking that could produce a different result. How many of you think that could be true? Okay. So that's kind of my come from in this whole thing. Now, bitterness, the word, uh, there's not some hidden Greek definition of it. It essentially has the connotation of sourness. Sourness. And there's, you notice, like when something's sour, you ever opened up your refrigerator and you had sour milk? Or worse yet, you didn't smell it before you put it on your cereal? And you, and you, you were in a rush? And it's like, oh, God, have mercy, right? Uh, So bitterness, there's a a sourness to to it. Now, you notice that bitterness sours your relationship with God. Now, one thing I want to be clear about is it doesn't sour his relationship with you. Now, that's important to remember. 
the, the bitterness I may feel towards God about something is not necessarily the same as how God feels about me. God's never bitter towards me. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But I can get bitter. And so it can sour my relationship with God. But we also know that Scripture says, and that's where the, the title comes from about the root of bitterness and digging it up. Hebrews talks about, you know, to be diligent to make sure that this root of bitterness isn't in you because why? It defiles many. Because see, the sourness is pervasive. It not only sours my relationship with God, but it sours my relationship with others in the community, like the community of faith, those who I'm relating to in, in a more near faith context. But it also sours our relationship in the community. I was talking to people about uh, when we were going through our building issues, Travis, and we were talking about this last night over dinner, uh, I, made, I absolutely made a decision. I was not going to make the city adversarial to me. We had no's for three years. And we went through building thing twice and had the same kind of stuff. But I said, I am not... I noticed a lot of my peers got bitter at the city. But you know what? They didn't just get bitter at the city. They had been bitter about things going on in their church and bitter at some of their church members. And they were bitter in their relationship with God because they're... You see... Bitterness really kind of grows in this philosophical environment of, and here it is, life should be a certain way and people should be a certain way towards me. Life should turn out a certain way towards me and people should be a certain way towards me. And when life doesn't turn out the way I think it should and people aren't towards me the way I think they should, I get disappointed, I get hurt, I get angry, and I get, here's our word, bitter. I'm bitter because my one plus one equals two type of equation, this is the way it's supposed to be. God, this is the way you're supposed to be to me. This is the way people are supposed to be. This is the way my church is supposed to be. This is the way circumstances are supposed to be. This is the way my kids are supposed to be. When that math gets screwed up, I get disappointed, hurt, angry, and I start to become bitter. Cynical. See how quiet it is right now? That's always a good sign. That means, ooh, yes, I know that feeling. Yes. You see, we all live with a certain perspective of, of how life should or shouldn't be. You all get that, right? That's called being human. All of us. Like now, now, like for a moment, because you know, there's always at least one or two in every church that they kind of float about three feet off the ground. Not me. I just want what God wants. Well, you know, I get it. I get it. I want what God wants too. But I also know, come down. You are a person who has dreams and expectations like everybody else. That just makes you human, right? You hope that if you raise your children a certain way, they will turn out a certain way. Amen? Do they? Well, that's another subject. So I, from a firsthand experience, come to you as a fellow seeker and journeyer. I have had massive disappointments. Life has not turned out the way that I thought it would, or should I say, should. See, would and should are different, aren't they? Would was like, yeah, should is like. And that's hit the most tender parts of my life, the things I care most about, my kids, my son, the church, the things you invest yourself into, fellow leaders, and, you know, all... All the stuff that you think it's going to turn out a certain way. People are going to love you a certain way. You know, the greatest need of all humankind, right? Is to be loved. And to know that you're loved. 
But the truth of the matter is, like Henry Nouwen, if you're not familiar with him, great author, died like around 1980, 1990, somewhere around there, wrote some wonderful things, but Nouwen said, listen, as human beings, we all love poorly on our best day. On our best day, we love one another poorly. Now, that really offends me because I think I'm a good father. I'm a loving father, and I am. But you know what? I'm an imperfect father. I'm a good pastor. I love my sheep. Yes, but you know what? You didn't love all those sheep the way you, you know, you, you kind of love more some than others, right? That's true, I did. Some you kind of, yeah, some you withheld yourself with, some you gave yourself to, yeah. We all love poorly, and because we all love poorly, we all give one another more than enough opportunity to be disappointed and, yes, to become bitter. So, I'd like now, before we look at this text, I'd like to talk about what can happen when you come to this text, and this is kind of the seminary professor in me now, when you come to this text and you start going, okay, put away, and it begins to list all these things, it says put away bitterness. How many of you know that that can quickly become kind of like a do this? Right? Now, when you come to a scripture, it's very important that you come to something, particularly something that can appear as like a do this, and make sure that you've got the backfill to what the author is really talking about. Like, what is his mood before he gets to put away or stop this? Right? So I want to give you a quick snapshot. The first thing that I want you to notice is like, if, and if you could just kind of like, let me do this quickly in more as a summary. When you start the book of Ephesians, he uses this phrase, the heavenlies. Just say it with me. He says, you know, you've been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. The heavenlies, by definition, is the unseen realm, right? It's the unseen realm that is the big R real. It is the same, it's the language that Paul used to talk about what Jesus talked about when he said the kingdom of God is among you. Or another one of the gospel writers says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know what that means, right? Essentially, what Jesus is saying, there is another realm of reality that is this close. Right there. Like, right now, it's right here. And Jesus demonstrated the presence of the nearness of that reality, that big R reality, what Paul calls the heavenlies, because when he cast out demons, he healed the sick, right? He spoke and it had this, like, incredible ring of life that was not self-validating, but he was being validated from the voice from heaven. You know, the, like, like, who is this person? Nobody's like this. He, he was exhibiting another reality, right? And that reality, big R, was bigger than the reality of what John the Apostle calls the kingdoms of this world, right? Kings of this world, Paul, John writes, are becoming the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. We sang about it this morning. So there's this little R reality we all live in that is being overtaken by the big R reality that Paul calls the heavenlies. And my point is this. There is real resource available in the kingdom, or what Paul calls the heavenlies, that he says that you have been seated with Christ in. It's not like up there, it's here. See, that's the part where we, if you get the up-down thing out of the way, and you just go, I am now presently, as a believer, seated with Christ in the heavenlies. I operate in two R's, big R and little r. I'm a part of this world. Jesus didn't pray that he would take me out of it, but I would stay faithful to him in it, Right? And that I would act as a sent one of the big R amidst the little R because big R is taking over little R. Have I lost anybody? 
Okay, so there's great resource. That's the takeaway out of this point. Paul wants you to know from the get-go, great resource. Second thing he wants you to know is he says you've been accepted in the beloved. Now, this is without question the most important thing I want you to take away this morning. And that is this. Is, is that the greatest resource that we have in this earthly life is to get in our getter, to know in our knower that we are completely accepted. Totally accepted. Yesterday I was driving from home down here and there was a friend of mine who has just screwed his life up big time to the point of like criminal kind of implications. And he called me. And, um, you know, I sat with him in and over the phone. But it was so cool to be able, and he was, and he was so steely in the whole thing. He was just kind of like reporting the data of what had happened. And I said, you know, David, I understand you've screwed your life up. But I said, one thing is really important you get right now. This has not changed one thing between you and God. He accepts you as much as he did before you did this. And he started weeping. You see, this, I think, is the great challenge of our life. Is that we start off going, oh yeah, it's by grace we're saved and we're accepted and so forth. But then we spend the rest of our life trying to validate it and earn it. But the truth of the matter is, here is your greatest resource. You are beloved. Now, Look at Jesus for a moment. When Jesus was on this, in, in this earthly body, right? It is no accident that we have this voice out of heaven saying, Jesus, what? You are beloved. What was the very first temptation that occurred to him? He was in the wilderness, and three times the enemy, note, three times the enemy tried to seduce him to validate himself through some sort of external act rather than accept the fact that he is the beloved son. Prove you're the beloved son. Prove it. Validate it. Have some sort of other external evidence out here that you are. Don't just accept the voice of heaven that you're accepted. And so often we miss that element. Because Jesus goes out of there and what does he do? He lives life like you and I live life. He is disappointed. He is betrayed. He is misunderstood. All the same common things of life that is the recipe, right? Life not being the way that it should. That disciple shouldn't have betrayed me. That disciple shouldn't have run away. That disciple shouldn't have, you know, got it? These people shouldn't be throwing me out of my own hometown. My brothers and my sisters shouldn't think I'm crazy. Lots of opportunity for bitterness here, folks. But Jesus sails through it. How does he do it? He lives out of the resource that he was accepted by the Father. Period. And so that how life shows up doesn't become the arbitrator of how he's going to be in life. His core is this. I am loved by the Father. And I'm now going to live my life regardless of how it shows up or doesn't show up, how people are or aren't. I'm going to live my life from that core. How else could he hang on a cross and say, Father, forgive them? They don't know what they're doing. He was living from the core that he was loved even at his darkest moment. 
So, you can tell I get worked up when I speak. We're also told that we are forgiven. This is really important. Now, note that here's something that, again, is commonly missed about the idea of forgiveness. Usually when we think about forgiveness, we think about you're forgiven or I'm forgiven for what I did, right? Paul's concept of forgiveness here is nuanced. It includes that, but it means something more. He's looking at what sin did, not just between you and God, but what sin did between you and one another. Sin has not just a vertical, but a horizontal dimension, right? So you see this in the garden. When sin comes, there's a disorientation, not just between God and man, but between humankind, and you see that quickly fragmenting. Paul is tapping into that because he's like going, listen, not only are we accepted, but we're forgiven, meaning not only has this, uh, this disjunction between you and the Father been uh, addressed, but the disjunction between you and one another is now addressed, right? Carries the concept of reconciliation. Now, the reason I say that is, is the great theme of Ephesians is the summing up of all things in Christ. All things. You, you and I together, right? Not just you and I together, but actually everything that is on earth and in heaven is going to be summed up in Christ. Can we call it this morning the plan? It is the plan. Now, we get pissed off. Can we say that here? Okay. I I heard crap and other things, so I figured it was okay. Uh, we We get pissed off when... I get, I'll I'll speak in first person. I get pissed off when my plan isn't happening. Anybody else here? Okay. Okay, there's a basic problem, right? Basic problem is my world is is orbiting my plan. Ephesians is reminding me, hello, there is a different center of the universe. And it's called God's plan. And God's plan is to bring all things together. When my plan doesn't work out, and you happen to be a part of it, not making it work out, guess what? I pull away from you because you disappointed me. You are not reliable. I can't depend on you. So I pull away and I alienate because I forget God's plan is the exact opposite, which is the bringing together of all things. So when you read chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, notice the theme that all things might be gathered together in Christ, that all things, you know, what was once separated by sin, and there was Jew and Gentile, now those have been brought together. One time you were alien and strangers, but now you've been brought together. Do you get the themes of brought together? Chapter 3. Chapter 4. Oh my gosh, what a point he makes. In chapter 4, he starts using the word, one, 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 one. You know what I'm talking about, right? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body. He's trying to get the message. You have been resourced for forgiveness, not just so you can feel better about your relationship with God, but so that you can begin to live your life out as a part of the great plan, the plan to bring things together. It is not God's plan for us to contribute towards pushing things away. Bitterness does that. Next. I want to talk to you here about this idea of the calling, chapter, th- <clears throat> chapter 4. It says, to walk worthy of the calling which you were called. Well, what's the calling? I thought this would be helpful for us. First of all, the calling he's referring to is the fact that you and I as individuals are loved. We've already established that. We are absolutely accepted. You want to know what's the hope of your calling? You're loved. 
perfectly, totally. Like, Valerie, as much as she loves me, can't love me perfectly. I can't love her perfectly. I can't love my kids perfectly. But God loves us perfectly. Somebody say amen to that one. So the calling, the hope of the calling is we are loved perfectly, not just by someone, but by big someone. We are loved. Secondly, the hope of the calling also involves the fact that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is Paul's great message. Not only are you loved, but you're resourced with power that is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. He's very clear about this. It is able to overcome death in its literal dimension. It certainly is able to overcome disappointment. Amen? The power of the Holy Spirit is able to overcome any disappointment, neutralize any hatred, anger, malice. And the third part about this calling is is that you and I, every one of us, are called to participate. We are actually, well, he says in chapter 2, for God created you, right, for good works. You've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we are all called to contribute towards the plan. How many of you like to be a part of something significant? I do. We're all part of the plan. You just got to know what the plan is. And then once you know what the plan is, you go, well, how can I be? Good news, you're a part. Second good news, guess what? You're loved, so you're capacitated. You're free to be able to contribute no matter what. doesn't matter what comes your way. You can still go from the center of being loved by God and, and interact with whatever's going on. That's why we can say we can even love those who don't love us. And how the Holy Spirit is there to capacitate us to do that. Now, in chapter 4, when he talks about walking worthy of the calling, there's three E words. Here they are. Ready? Everybody say it together. Endeavor. It means do everything possible to. That's what the word means. It says endeavor to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So, Endeavor means do everything possible to maintain the unity of the body. Everything possible. I don't know about you, but I tend to say, I've done everything possible when I haven't. Anybody else like that? I've, I, there's nothing else can be done. This some person comes along, doesn't even know the situation, thinks of six ways it could happen differently. Right? I had a coaching client the other day, and they go, I have exhausted everything. I go, are you sure? He goes, yes. And he has a PhD, and he's really smart and whatever. I go, so you're absolutely positive. He goes, yes. I said, okay, sit down. We're on a phone. Sit down. And I went, blah, 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 blah. And he goes, I never thought of that. And I go, go figure. (laughs) You see, we, in most cases, have not done everything possible to do something, right? The scripture says, do everything possible to maintain the unity. Now, just bring it right down to where you live, with your family, right? With your friends, with your church. Do everything possible to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Secondly, the Bible calls us to do what? To be menders. It's the word equipping. I said three E words, so I use the E word. Equip means to mend. Mend was a word used to set a bone in a body. Okay, so I'm sure every church has got places where there's some mending that needs to happen, right? We're called to be menders, to be healers. What? To do what? To make sure that the way that the body is is that we're not pulling apart, but that we're pulling together. 
Then the third thing, he uses the word equip. Do everything you can to build up. The, so not only am I supposed to do everything possible to maintain this unity, not only am I supposed to give myself in my actions to bringing us together and mending anything that needs to be mended, but I need to build up. And then here's this lovely word. Everybody say it with me. Until. You know what until is? Until means until. Until what? <laughs> okay, you ready? Sorry. Until all of us together reach the full maturation of being like Christ. Now, if you're like me, you want to go, that's never going to happen. <laughs> right? I quit. But how many of you have raised kids? Oh, I quit about a million times. Right? How many of you, well, probably not as many of you have pastored a church. I quit them a million times too, right? I'm sure Jesus, Jesus probably pulled a few hairs out. Going, these disciples. Because, you see, there's just this, there's just this thing called until. We are all called to participate in each other's life, regardless of the disappointments, regardless of the betrayals, regardless of what happens. We are called to be in each other's life to promote growth in one another. That is what you call informing the context. So now when you get to this last point, which is really about how we now choose to live our life in the day-to-day, right? Like when I, when I drove down here, uh, before I drove down here, I went to my closet, right? And I said, hmm, now what do they wear at Radiant Church? <laughs> right? Well, you have to understand. I mean, I speak from East Coast to here. And that, the answer to that question is not always the same. <laughs> Right? Like, it's different. Depending on where you go, what setting you're in, what, you know. I go, what? I go, well, jeans will probably be fine. You know, that'll be good. You know, so it's like, look down to earth, but semi-cool. Okay? So, so, but semi-cool in other places, they make up stuff about that. Well, he's from California. You know, so it's like, you have to, you know, I have to kind of push my hair down when I'm, when I'm in other parts of the nation. But anyway. So the point is, is I make a choice. I make a choice about my clothing. I make a choice about my clothing. It's strategic, right? Because you just want to be able to kind of to connect and not create a problem and, and, and do all the things you need to do. Got it. We do that when we go to work. We're in a business environment. Are we going to a friend's house for a party? Whatever it is. So what this scripture is really calling us to is it says, listen, we need to be clear. You get up every day and you put on something, hopefully, You put on something before you go out the door, and you're somewhat strategic about what it is you're going to go do. Are you going to go to the gym and work out? Are you going to go to church? Are you going to go to a friend's house? Are you going to a formal? What are you doing? And so when you get down, it says to put off the old man and put on the new. It's like saying, listen, yeah, all this is fantastic. You're accepted. You're empowered. There's this great calling and so forth. But it comes down to this daily choice of being clear about who you are, what you're about, and what you're going to put on and what serves that, what serves that direction. Because there are certain things you'll put on that serves your purpose and your plan, right? And there's other things you put on that don't. You put on the old man and you get what comes along with it, the bitterness. You will feel the sourness in your own spirit and you will dispel that sourness throughout the community, right? No matter how covert and smart and sophisticated you think you might be able to dress that puppy up, it's still bitterness. You can see it in a person's eyes. 
They don't have to open their mouth. You can see it in what they don't. You can, see, you can feel it in their mood. Are you with me? We're not that smart, folks. So this scripture calls us to put on, put on the new man, which is like after Christ, right? So now have and go, okay, this is what I'm about. As I start my day, I'm going to put on the reality that I'm a member of another kingdom as I live in this present world. I'm going to put on the fact that I'm accepted by Christ, like really, truly. Yeah, I screwed up yesterday, but that didn't change how he felt about me. And I'm going to live from that core reality that I am loved so that if somebody's loving or unloving, it does not dictate how I'm going to be towards them. I can treat even my enemies as beloved because I am beloved. I don't have to look for circumstances and people to validate that I'm loved. I don't, shall I use the word, I don't have to prostitute myself on these externals. I could just be an adopted son or adopted daughter of the father and just accept it. Like, get over it. He loves you. And I live my life and then I make my choice about what I'm going to put on. And in that place, Paul then says what? Now, do you feel the difference rather than just put off bitterness? Rule number 733. Right? Put that one off. And after you do that one, rule 744. You know, put off malice. I'm still working on bitterness. Well, how, 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 about, how about if things are adjusted at the foundational level, that the putting off bitterness becomes nothing more than kind of like a refrigerator reminder. Like, that's not what I'm about. Right? That's not, that's not what I'm about. That's not, that's, not, that's not where I'm going. Yeah, I get that's an option, but no. I'll put that one off. I leave you with this. He says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Almost all of our translations have this word, forgiving one another. This word forgiving is different than the typical word used in the Greek New Testament. The, the typical word is aphameo, which means to release, right? You all knew Greek, so just say yes, okay? So it means to release, right? I'm holding something against you. I'm releasing it. This word is not that word. This word is related, related to the word charis. And actually what it means is it means, listen, be tenderhearted. Are you ready for this? Grace one another. You see, in other words, what it is, it's a very subtle appeal to saying, listen, rather than going tit for tat, rather than keeping score with one another, rather than trying to find out whether somebody deserves all of you in the moment, why don't you just do what Christ has done and grace them? Get rid of the score sheet. And just grace them. And you go, why? Because you've been graced. You've been graced beyond any ability of humankind to even put it into language. You've been graced. You've been accepted with Christ and the beloved forever. So now, grace one another. Here are the words of Harry Nowen. As he talks about forgiveness, he says, Forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. The hard truth is is that all people love poorly. We need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour, incessantly. That is the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak. That is the human family. So my prayer for you is is that, like Nowen says, that you would forgive 
as you've been forgiven. You would grace people as you've been graced. Will you pray with me? Well, Lord, (laughs) I just want to say hallelujah. Because when we're in your presence and we hear your truth, not only does it ring clear, but it cleans out our ears, straightens out our thoughts. It's like a serious adjustment at the chiropractor, Lord. It's like, whoa, that came into place. And so, Lord, in respect to this issue of bitterness, thank you, Lord, for softening the ground with your truth so that whatever's there can come up. And, Lord, thank you for your truth. It has such a, you know, you say, now we are clean through your word, which you've spoken unto us. Thank you for the purifying, cleansing, and healing aspects of your word to us that would prevent this. Lord, let us just, let us just now walk worthy of the calling that you've given to us. Open our eyes, even as Paul said, the eyes of our understanding that we might know what the hope of our calling is, Lord, that we might know that we're accepted, that we might know the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantvicelia.com. Until next time. I